All right, you may not know it, but that song contains one of the base elements. I was talking with someone the other day working with teenagers. He said, let me tell you, the first thing we've got to try and help young people again understand is God is not dead. God is not gone. God is not a myth. We are dealing with a generation, some of whom go, I, I really not sure, I really don't care. And more and more, even if those raised in the church would say, man, I just, I've heard so much about, you know, how crummy God is from some YouTube video or something, that they find themselves no longer even believing that base thing. And when David was talking about what kind of things are we going to debate about, you know? Land sakes, peripheral stuff is even more and more peripheral. And there's probably no place in the world where I'm more aware of that than in our major cities like Los Angeles and New York, specifically the Bronx where Seth is coming from. Seth's father was a minister and Seth has decided that he is spending his life in ministry, but it's very different from the ministry walk that David and I had. And his walk is with not simply with young people, but also with folks who come here from other cultures, folks who come here possibly as refugees or migrants. Seth is out there sharing Jesus in ways that are whole in the roof to a lot of us. I am so thankful. This summer, last summer, Seth came and spoke at an event here called Crossways. Crossways is a nine-day Christian leadership event, and I love the sister who just came to me and said, thank you for Crossways. Four of my grandkids have gone. Uh, it is... Uh, camp, VBS, and a seminary if they had a bus wreck and, uh, and they all just kind of melded together. It is a time to ask the question not, what do you want to be when you grow up? But who is it that God has uniquely gifted you to be? Uh, if you don't know about Crossways, please look it up online. Only for sophomores and juniors in high school. Uh, but we brought Seth in and it was so wonderful to see these students just, whoa. Woe at a number of things. Woe at some of the things he was saying. Woe at, dude, this guy doesn't look like anybody who should be teaching at Pepperdine. Uh, I, I mean, you know, his, his hair was, how long was it when you came for? Uh, Probably down past my ribs. Yeah, yeah. It, it, he just, and, and, and the wonder, his father is here, so I'll go ahead and acknowledge it. Dan Bouchel is, yeah. is in our class. Thank you, Dan, for coming in to watch your, and I quoted you, wonderfully weird son. Um, but without getting too funky, I really thought after I'd spent time with Seth, I wonder if this is what it felt like for somebody in that Pharisee Jewish culture to meet Jesus or one of the disciples whose view was just so oddly, maybe right, I don't know. Um, I, I want to take the mantle off of Seth of having all the answers, but I do want to say he is in the trenches and experiencing it, and I'm so happy to turn you over to him uh, for the next 45 minutes or so. Would you make welcome Seth Bouchel? Uh, Jeff, I'm supposed to remind you to turn this thing on. All right, you did. Excellent. <laughs> well, then my work here is done. A uh, couple things, quickly. Uh, one, as, as we said earlier, I thought I was going to be teaching with Dudley Chancey, and Jeff had said, you know, please bring handouts, and I thought, well, Dudley can probably draw about 10 or 12 people, so I don't have enough handouts. Uh, that joke worked. Um, anyway, so I, I have some, if you're a very visual person, but the second thing is, I wasn't sure, uh, this will be an exercise in contextualization, but I'll give this to you in a minute, but maybe not just me. Because uh, so I was going to go get more copies made if you want. Oh, I might do that, but in a minute. So here's the deal. Uh, early exercise and contextualization for us as a class. There's only about three things I can talk about uh, in our ministry, because I don't know all that much. But our ministry, we do church planning among uh, predominantly immigrant populations in the five boroughs of New York. I am not a youth minister, though some of our churches are uh, almost exclusively youth. We've got a, a whole network of churches that are all gang-affiliated kids between 11 and 18. They lead their own churches. They started those churches. Um, pretty much everybody in there was discipled by one of the three or four initial kids in there. Uh, but they're pretty similar to the rest of our churches, so I'm going to not really differentiate them that strongly. I don't know what you do for a living. I don't know your context. I haven't been in it in my entire adult life, so I do not know what is most helpful. So we can talk about evangelism, we can talk about spiritual formation and leadership development within our churches, or we can talk philosophy of ministry. I do not know which one is most helpful. 
Uh, I'm going to give you three minutes to turn to your, no, no, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to turn to your neighbor. Uh, ask them what they would like this class to be about for the next 45 minutes, and then we're just going to pull it. Seth, put one sentence behind each one of those three. Uh, yeah, evangelism, uh, how do we start spiritual conversations? Mm -hmm. uh, spiritual formation, how do we teach people how to pray? And philosophy of ministry, uh, what do these churches look like? <laughs> Make sense? All right, turn to your neighbor, ask them what we're about to talk about, and then uh, we'll pull the room in a second. to the number of what we're going to talk about and hold it up higher than that uh, Thank you, too hard. Jeff what do you call it uh, I call it everybody put your hands down <laughs> hold up for number one <laughs> Seth, look at the hand. okay hold up for number two okay hold up for number three all right what do you think three seven I thought the three's had it all right that's who we're talking about then no handouts for you <laughs> <laughs> He's going to give me the PDF for the handout, so we'll send you the handout. Yeah, and we'll probably hit those other two anyway, but okay. in, in terms of which one's kind of framing the other two. Uh, so yeah, our ministry, we're working around what we call a person of peace concept. Basically what that means is uh, for our, our new missionaries that come in, we're a missionary team. Uh, traditionally, most of our staff have focused on a particular either immigrant population or, or kind of culture, depending on how the neighborhoods work themselves out in New York. Uh, for many years, we hosted a missionary in residence program, and so we would have somewhere between about 12 and 20 full-time missionaries come spend their first year with us in New York before sending them overseas. Uh, now, uh, we do the same ministry in New York, but we also do a lot of church equipping. And this is where I think it applies to you guys. I, I spend about half my time training local Christians in cities around the U.S. and around the world to, to do evangelism, to start spiritual conversations, how to make disciples. Specifically, how to make disciples that themselves are capable of making disciples. And in any given church, not just Churches of Christ, if you ask the adults over 40 why they don't do evangelism, the answer is, I don't know enough. I don't know enough. I'm not prepared for the questions people are going to ask me. I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to give Christianity a bad reputation. Uh, I'm not prepared to do this. And I am curious who this hypothetical uh, Christian is that knows enough to disciple another person. <laughs> who is that person? Uh, and why is it that we have such a, a higher bar for what qualifies you to make disciples than Jesus does? Where did we get that standard? I don't know. But I think it's a question worth asking. And what I would like to tell you is, uh, you know, our, our churches in New York are almost 100% evangelistic, meaning almost everybody in the room came to faith in that room. Most of the churches we didn't start, they were started by people we discipled. And so why is it that a bunch of people who have been Christians for less than nine years are doing so much more evangelism than every church I grew up in? Because they don't know the Bible as well as you do. They haven't been disciples nearly as long as you have. And they don't seem to feel like they don't know enough. So where did that come from? Right? So anyway, what we do with our churches, uh, when we get into missionaries, and, and in my early years now, I do a lot more in, in kind of the leadership of networks of churches because they carry out a lot of the evangelism ministry. But in the early years, uh, 
my full-time gig was pretty much evangelism, hanging out in disreputable places around the five boroughs, starting spiritual conversations with people, and if I meet somebody who's pretty spiritually open, receptive, and, and we have a good conversation, if they ask to come to church with me, the answer is no. Uh, nope, can't come to church with me. Go gather the people that you want to be church with, and I'll come with you. And we'll start something there. And so rather than extract an individual person from their community and try to integrate them into a group of people they do not know and have no relationships with, why don't we have them pull together the people that they already have relationships and community with and see if we can't disciple those people together through faith. Uh, and there's a couple important reasons for that. Uh, one is, uh, initially, we didn't have any churches for them to join in New York. <laughs> so it was easy to say. Uh, but also, the populations we work with are very transient. Uh, most of them are first and second generation immigrants. Uh, they work an enormous number of hours every week. They do not control their own schedules. Most of them support large family networks overseas. Uh, and it is not enough just to disciple them into faith because we have a pretty short runway of how long we're going to be with these people. We don't know how long it is, but most of the churches we plant are probably not going to exist in five years. And that's okay. Uh, almost nothing in nature is judged by how long it lives. It's judged on whether it reproduces healthily. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's not almost nothing you look at in the world that you say, man, that thing's 200 years old. It's super healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say that again? Yeah, there's pretty much nothing in nature that we judge its health by how long it lives. We judge it by how, how healthily it can reproduce. Uh, and I'm a big believer that uh, disciples will reproduce whatever was formative for them. Mm. And for most of the people in our pews, what was formative for them was expert biblical education. And that's why they can't reproduce it. <coughs> mm. They feel like they're not qualified because they're not, because they think what they're expected to reproduce is the caliber of biblical education that formed them. And they're never going to do evangelism or disciple another person as long as that's what they think they're expected to do in the lives of another person. Which is why we have outsourced disciple making to a class of educated experts. Uh, and pretty much nobody's going to do any ministry without credentials behind it from a seminary. But that isn't what we see modeled in the ministry of Jesus. Right? So we have this kind of person to peace concept. I mean, there are strategic reasons for that, but I think we also see that in, in the Gospels and Acts. You know, you have these people like Cornelius and Lydia and the Philippian jailer, and over and over and over again, they and their whole household are saved. They and all her whole household are saved. And particularly when we're working cross-culturally, especially if we're working with people from another religious background, we have often done evangelism in a way that will, it may disciple some people into faith, but it'll come at the cost of almost all of their relationships. It'll come at the cost of their relationships with their family, and anyone from their cultural background, because nobody from that network of relationships got to participate in their faith formation. And by the time they make a decision about being a follower of Jesus, they have had enough experiences that they did not share with their community, that their community doesn't understand that decision and doesn't understand how to support it. And I don't think that's necessary. It, it will inevitably happen in some cases, but I don't think it's necessary to make people choose between their culture and Jesus, and to choose between their family network and Jesus. A lot of that's our fault for how we've chosen to make disciples, mm -hmm. methodologically. Everybody with me so far. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, Bronx culture is very interruptible. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to spend time in New York, but uh, people interrupt each other constantly, and it's very hard to, to keep focused on one thing, and I'm kind of programmed that way after years of living up there, so here's what I would like to do. Uh, I want to have some conversation, I'm going to tell some stories, I'm going to try to make some coaching points, but I'm not going to want you to wait for Q&A time to ask questions. I, I want this to be more of a conversation. So at any point, if I say something that's not clear or that you want me to elaborate on or you have a question that is relevant and you're worried that we're going to switch our attention to somewhere else, just throw your hand up and we can stop on that. It's not going to bother me at all. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so here's the go. I want to talk to you about our youth churches first, and we'll see where we go from there. Uh, our initial youth church, they're all in the same apartment complex on the west side of the Bronx. They're predominantly Latino, uh, mostly Dominican, Puerto Rican, but also heavily African American. And uh, now we've got a, a few West African families that have moved in the building, so we've got like three new West African kids that are in the church. Um, apartment uh, in the complex that one of my teammates lives in. Uh, one of the bedrooms is a music studio that we had set up 
from a church we've got in the East Village that's all a bunch of artists and musicians donated that equipment to us, helped set it up. Got uh, a pool table and a couple of beds in the other room. A lot of our kids end up uh, homeless or abused, and so they can stay there with certain conditions. Uh, we got Closet full of clothes with the gap out that gives us that kids can come take whatever clothes they want. Kitchen full of food. That's where a lot of our ministry budget goes. But they kind of run it themselves. Uh, they lead the Bible studies themselves. They do most of the evangelism in those churches. Uh, they make most of the decisions around how those churches operate and run. And we get to do a lot of the spiritual formation and coaching and mentoring in the background. But they really do own this. And in that way, our youth churches aren't different than any of our other churches. Um, they're in some ways less mature, uh, but not all. And to, to go back to one of David's slides, I think in a lot of the ministry that I saw growing up, we, we organized our churches around linear stages of life. So you have the nursery care, the children's ministry, the youth ministry, the campus ministry, the young families, the young marrieds, the, you know, and then the, you just do the same progression with kids. You have to be in a, in a certain place in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs to know those things are gonna happen in order. Uh, and in a lot of urban settings, like the ones I work in, marriage and, and having children have very little to do with one another. Uh, there is no expectation of an ascending career trajectory. You work what jobs you can get to provide for your family. There's no reason why the best job you ever have wouldn't be when you're 25. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, the Bronx has only about a 60% graduation rate from high school. Uh, so I think I can count on one hand the number of college-educated people that are part of our church. Um, most of them don't have a high school diploma. Uh, so that's the context we work in, but these are people who do the ministry of Jesus and work for the mission of God and, and make disciples and do evangelism. And I'm, I'm very proud to work with them. Uh, I don't know what you want to know about them. So I, I will turn how the many back churches over. do you have in the different boroughs? That's an excellent question. Uh, it depends on how you define a church. Sure. <laughs> uh, for our own internal metrics, I say uh, a church has to have at least two baptized people in it. Uh, and it needs to meet on its own initiative for longer than two months. Uh, in that sense, uh, I don't think we've ever had more than a few dozen at a time. Um, but they're constantly in a cycle of dissolving and replanting. Either because the people in them move, uh, occasionally they've been unhealthy enough that I went and split them up, <laughs> um, but they're, they're pretty short-lived. Most of them last about three to five years before they dissolve. But again, we're not counting the number of churches as what is successful. We're counting the number of people who are disciples who are capable of making disciples. And so if we have a church, so for example, the, the first church I planted in the Bronx met at the Botanical Gardens. It started uh, Person of Peace. His name it was Anthony. Uh, I don't think he's going to listen to this, so I should have changed his name, but oh well. I uh, met him in a Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, he was trying to get me involved in a pyramid scheme selling wheatgrass. Um, and said to him, uh, so, you know, it sounds like you know a lot about plants, which is not particularly true, but uh, I said, I, I got a question for you. I said, I, I was reading the Bible the other day. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed. And uh, I was always told growing up, mustard seed, you know, Small little seed grows into the biggest tree, but I found out that's not actually true. I found out mustard's actually more like a weed. What do you think that story's supposed to mean? Hmm? What, do you, what do you think I'm supposed to teach about the kingdom of God? I, you know more about plants than I do. What, what's that supposed to mean? So we have this conversation. He says, oh, uh, well, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a minister. Oh, you're a pastor. Can I come to church with you? No, you can't come to church with me. Go, go gather people you know, and I'll come to church with you. Uh, he pulled together... Uh, a few of his friends, they pulled together a few more people. The very first house church we had was Anthony, uh, another guy who is uh, half Puerto Rican, half, I think, Italian. Uh, he was actually a, a pastor's kid that had left faith. Uh, when I met him, he'd studied Taoism, and Tao means the way, and Jesus says he's the way. So Jesus was actually the founder of Taoism, not Christianity. Uh, he brought a friend who's just this tatted-up Dominican slam poet that worked at Starbucks. Um, they brought a guy from their gym who was kind of Irish-Puerto Rican guy, very new age, uh, co-owned a crystal shop. He brought his girlfriend who was from Eritrea, and she was in uh, a cult that worshipped the Virgin Mary as an earth goddess. They brought another guy from their gym who had grown up in a post-Islamic household from Turkey, uh, but had joined a Zen Buddhist 
uh, group when he went to the University of Berkeley. Uh, they brought another guy who was a recently decided atheist, uh, grew up in a Bosnian family in the Balkans, uh, and then another guy who was kind of a lapsed Catholic uh, and the most Italian kind of New York stereotype you can think of. Uh, he had on, you know, he just wore like a black tracksuit every day and carried a briefcase for no reason. Um, that was the first group that we started. Uh, within about two years, they had started five other house churches. Um, three of those men in the Tampa Gardens, other ones had gone into people's homes. And, you know, they, those kind of just constantly collapse, and then you have to talk to the people and say, well, okay, what are we doing? Who, who are the leaders that are going to go on and, and form new things? Who's going with them? Uh, for a lot of the people, if, if they leave and move to a city where they don't know anyone, we'll usually try to work and get them connected to a, a healthy church if we can. Um, but that, that kind of work is how, you know, we've had churches migrate back to Korea, to Taiwan. We've got work right now in Singapore and Panama uh, and, and kind of coast to coast. And so numerically, I don't try to count churches, I try to count leaders. Um, because I don't, I don't know how many churches we have at any given time and the number of churches is not a very meaningful metric for me. Uh, you know, what's healthier, five new churches or or one that's the same number of people but meets in one location. I don't know. Uh, and churches, when churches die in our ministry, it's usually not a sign of anything being wrong. It's just a sign of transition. Um, but if I know how many leaders we're working with, and if I think that they're disciples that are worth reproducing, I think that's a pretty good metric for me. Yeah? So what you do is uh, amazing and inspiring with that. You want to go and try this some, you know, where, mm -hmm. where I'm from, Sacramento. But in the churches that, like the church I live in, has 70 year old roots. Mm -hmm. It's trying to make a change. Yep. It has people in the spectrum of, say, 40 to 50s that are just mm -hmm. stuck. And yep. it's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. I don't know enough. What are the conversations that you're having or do you find yeah. are helpful to, you know, I'm not going to change them in a year, sure. two years, but what are the things that, to try and equip and yeah. start conversations with guys. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think there's a few things. Uh, I think it kind of depends on, again, context. There's not a one-size-fits-all, and I, I don't want to presume that I understand any church's context better than they do. But I would say, I think part of where it starts is if the people in your church don't know how to interact with lost people, they don't know how to start a spiritual conversation, I think it does start there. Yeah. Because the people that you want to disciple in your city need to be collaborators in what that church is going to look like. We don't want to decide for them and then try to attract them to it. We want them to be co-workers in building what that thing is and developing the culture of it. There's a couple reasons for that. We want it to be incarnational. I'm a big believer that if we're going to be on mission with God, we should try to be on mission like God, which means figuring out what it means to take on flesh and dwell wherever it is we're ministering. But uh, I think within our, within our own equipping, what that often looks like is uh, an e-course that we, we work with churches on that goes at the pace of the ministry they're doing. So there's not a timeline they need to get through. We won't, we'll move through it as they master skills. But I've got a church in, uh, anybody know where Moraga, California is? Uh, Moraga yeah. is, uh, they keep telling me it's a suburb of San Francisco, but as far as I can tell, it's actually just a country club on the other side East of Oakland. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, point being, uh, we started with them in about January. Uh, and said, okay, here's what I want. I don't want to train your church in evangelism. I want your five to eight most highly motivated leaders, and I want to work with them, and I will train them so that they can train the rest of your organization. Mm. So I know when my job is done, and they're capable of reproducing it when I'm not in the room. Uh, so worked with them for the last, what is it, May? So maybe four or five months. They are about halfway through their second wave. So the first people I'm training are training to other people now. I think they've got about three or four evangelistic Bible studies started. Uh, and one of those is already out of the, the second wave group. But the first wave group, they don't know how this e-course ends. They're not there yet. But we're, we're learning at that pace. So it's like, okay, first thing we're going to do, learn how to start conversations. And for the next two weeks, all we're going to do is go try to start spiritual conversations. Let's come back, debrief that. Okay, that went poorly. Awesome. That's what we expect. <laughs> this week is on how to follow up on spiritual conversations. <laughs> uh, next week's on how to have deeper conversations than those. The one after that, how do you know what a spiritually separate person looks like? How do you invite other people to, to study the Bible? And so we're just going to work on these basic missionary skills and competencies. Uh, because I think we do too much ministry training on theoretical ministry. 
and we expect that you understand the entire paradigm and skill set before you practice any of it. And that's not how almost any other vocation works. Uh, my significant other is a doctor. Uh, she is in charge of the residents at her hospital. They spend three years being doctors in order to become doctors. <laughs> but why don't we train people in ministry that way? We don't teach them to do ministry by doing ministry. We teach them to study it and, and master it as an intellectual discipline and then go develop the actual relational skills to implement it. And, and that's a lot harder to do. And a lot of the missionaries that have come to us are so intimidated by the inability to use their own knowledge that it's really hard to manage themselves emotionally in the field. There's a lot of insecurity because I know so much and I feel like I suck at this. Right. <laughs> uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, I do. Uh, we have a, a training program. It's an e-course that uh, will pair uh, qualified coaches with churches. I'm very happy to talk to you about uh, the content of that, but I, I do want to be cautious that this is not a commercial for our ministry. Uh, I'm not. Uh huh. E-course. E-course. Could you? It is a course on the computer. <laughs> I don't. I, is that, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but was that what you were looking for? I wasn't either. Okay. <laughs> yes, it is an electronic. It is an electronic course that basically is the same training we did for the last seven, eight years with residential missionaries, but it is electronic so that churches in, in different cities can do it at their own pace. Uh, because I don't. I, I did a lot of event-based training for years. I would fly out to churches and train them in weekend workshops. And that's just not a lot of, that's a good way for you to learn about ministry that we do. It's not a good way for you to develop the skill. You know, if I came and did a four hour uh, guitar workshop, uh, I wouldn't expect that you know how to play any of that after I leave. Uh, you learn ministry through doing ministry. And so that's how we try to work with churches is, okay, let's, let's get them in relationship. Let's learn at the pace those relationships develop. And by the time they kind of get through a few months of that, part of, part of knowing whether or not you've learned something is whether you can teach it to somebody else. Does that answer your question? Okay. Uh, somebody else had their hand up. I think it may have been you, sir. I've been, uh, I'm over 40. I've been there twice. 40 <laughs> past once and 40 more years. Okay. Uh, you know mentioned something then. about uh, nature, how, you know, the, you measure how well you reproduce. There are two populations in nature, humans and killer whales, that share something in common, and that is that they live a lot longer than their genetic reproductive years. Sure. There must be some reason for that. And it turns out that one of the reasons for that is that grandmothers, mm -hmm. grandmother killer whales, teach the young killer whales how to behave, how Absolutely. to hunt, how to sing the songs, and sure. all those things. So, I think there's a tremendous resource mm -hmm. in the grandmothers mm -hmm. and to some extent the grandfathers in this business. I agree. We just need to figure out some way to to make to bridge that gap. I agree. It's obviously not bringing the people from inner city to my white church. Mm -hmm. It's somehow going where they are sure. and we could use some direction in how to how to go about that. I know what yeah. it's different. It's different from every city but it's not that different. So sure. Uh, maybe I should take your e course. I, if you would like to, we'd love to have you. Okay. Uh, was there a question on the other end of that? Okay. Uh, yeah, I would say, I, I think, um, I think that our older churches have a tremendous role to play in the future of our ministry. Uh, one of those is, I think, the spiritual formation and care of the highest capacity evangelists within our churches. And I don't think we can determine that based on age. The, the church I'm working with in Moraga, that initial wave of people is all retired. They're all retired business people. They're doing a lot of evangelism on the golf course, and then they serve coffee every Wednesday morning at, at a school that meets in their church building. There's, there's no reason why youth is a particular advantage in this. I will say I think it's especially important that we equip our youth as a part of their own faith formation to know how to make disciples or else we are complicit in setting them up to be what is true about our current older generation, which is that there is this myth that I don't know enough to make a disciple. And, it, and I, I, you know, I was at a uh, retreat 
uh, in February. And we were doing a session on spiritual formation of the family. Uh, now, I am childless, so I had very little to say in this uh, because it was kind of focused on that. But I asked the question. I said, I said you know, we, we just spent an hour talking about spiritual formation of the family, talking about how to do spiritual disciplines with your kids, how to teach them to value reading scripture, how to teach them to value membership in the church. I said, at what point does anyone here expect their children to, to start trying to share their faith with another person? Nobody in the room had an answer. And I said, okay, well, why, why is it that we don't have an expectation around that? Well, because they don't know enough. Okay, well, when will they know enough? There's not an answer. And I, I don't have an answer for you, but I think that this is something we need to think about. Right? If, if teaching youth to share their own faith is not a part of their formation, they're not going to do it. But if it is a part of their formation, they are probably the best postured people in our churches to teach this to the rest of our church. Because in their schools and on their sports teams and in their part-time jobs or on a university campus, they are surrounded by people of differing religious backgrounds and perspectives and life experience. And for most of the people that are, are kind of over 40 and 50, they have an enormous role to play, but they're going to have to work harder to go develop relationships with non-Christians because they've spent most of their adult life not engaging in those relationships because they feel like they're not capable of it. Does that make sense? Said part of, um, I've been a part of leaderships where a lot of leaders that are very well respected had no non-Christian friends, mm -hmm. which is very alarming to me. But it goes back to that Jesus message and what Randy said the other night is the gospel is Jesus. And when Peter says, be able to give a reason for the hope, yeah. well, that's Jesus. And, and our generation was raised of, Here's a reason for the hope. This is why we worship this way. Today. Yes, apologetics. Was we don't have hope. apologetics, but the simplicity of it, which is fun with younger people, that we need to catch up with them is the hope for the world is Jesus. Yeah. And I can say, you know, like the apostles, come and see. Yeah. That's where your that's where your mission is. Hey, I won't come to you, but if there's people who want to come and see, I'll come to you. There's something to that. I mean, it's yeah. so simple, we miss it. Well, but I also, I think we have a lot of misconceptions about evangelism. I think, one, we think that, that in evangelism, the primary purpose is education. There you go. Which I disagree with. Uh, I think we also think that you need to be a Bible expert in order to be an evangelist. I would say, actually, that's not very helpful. <laughs> uh, if you never seem ignorant about anything, then even when you're successful in as evangelist, the people you disciple will not reproduce that because you modeled a way of evangelism that they can't reproduce. That's good. If you were the answer person that always had the right answer to every question they had, you modeled a form of, of disciple making that they cannot reproduce without that level of education, without that level of training and preparation. But if ignorance, which all of us possess, Everyone in this room is ignorant of everything they don't already know. <laughs> right? If ignorance is not an obstacle to making a disciple, then we can kind of embrace that in the process. And the way we do that in our churches is, is at the end of church, there are always two questions we end on. We're going to say, okay, how do we put this into practice? And we as a church are going to determine some actual disciplines to practice and obey Scripture because this is not about learning. This is about imitating Jesus. We're not here to study. We're here to imitate Jesus, to try to grow into the full stature of Christ. So how are we going to put this into practice? And who are we going to share this with? We ask it every week. How are we going to put this into practice? Who are we going to share this with? And occasionally you'll get pushed back. Like, well, what do you mean share? I said, okay, well, who are the people you process things with? Who are the people that when you, when you hear something important or when you learn something, you process it with them in conversation? Go talk to those people about what we just talked about. Come back. Tell us what their perspective was. And I, I do this all the time. I, I love to go tell parables. We talk about this as beatitude evangelism. Uh, it looks a lot like this. Uh, there's almost nobody that doesn't have at least some qualities that I admire. Right? Even, even some of the most misanthropic and, and bitter and mean-spirited people, they have qualities that I admire. Rather than try to go convince them to value something from my religious identity, why don't I go tell them what I already value about them because of my religious identity. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I want to have a conversation about that. 
So, uh, easy example that may get me into trouble. I do a lot of bar ministry. That's because people go to bars to meet people and talk. So, if you want to meet people and talk, pretty good place to go. Uh, so, at a bar, bartender is named Andy. So, Andy, you're a great peacemaker. I noticed that. Anytime, anytime conflict breaks out, you're in the middle of it, you're meeting any list on both sides. Here's a problem that I'm having at church. How would you advise me to make peace there? And he says, uh, I'll, I'll edit it for Pepperdine, but essentially, uh, you know, screw those people. I said, that's very tempting, Andy. Uh, but, uh, I said, but uh, here's, I said, here's the deal. Uh, Jesus says that uh, if you go to the temple to worship and you remember that, that somebody's got a problem, you go settle it first. So I actually could use your help on this. Uh, how, how would you advise me to make peace on that? Because I think you're better at this than I am, but it's something I want to grow in as a father. Right? Uh, easy to do. You're, you're a very generous person. I've noticed that. You're very generous. How did you learn that? Where did that come from? I'd like to grow in that as a father of Jesus. You're a very patient person. I've watched you with your kids. I watch how patient you're trying to be, how gracious you're trying to be. Where did you learn that? How does one get better at that? I want to get better than that as a father of Jesus. This is not that hard. But, it's a, but for most people I know, their, their unwillingness to come into a church isn't a lack of attraction to Jesus or lack of respect for Jesus. It's a feeling that Christians are a type of person that is completely unlike them. And they don't have any sense of how you got that way. And it's not the same kind of closeted Christian evangelism that I grew up with. I, you know, I, I did remember the door knocking and uh, passing out tracts, but we also at least... I grew up in the 90s, uh, and we had this kind of friendship evangelism, I think is what we called it, which is I'm going to essentially stay in the closet as a Christian, and, and one day a lost person is going to say, hey, how come you're so much better than everyone I know? <laughs> now, that's, that's based on some pretty bad theology. That's based on an assumption that non-religious people are not virtuous. That's the starting assumption there. Uh, and one of the things I watch over and over and over again with missionaries that come to New York is they go, especially in the Muslim communities, and those people have healthy families, and they have respectful marriages, and they are industrious and hardworking and responsible and ethical, and it's like, well, crap, nobody here needs Jesus. <laughs> because they have no idea what the gospel is in the face of a moral person. Right? All right. I, I can play ball with that. You have so many qualities I want to grow in because of who Jesus is. Where did you learn that? How does somebody get better at that? Here's a problem in one of our churches. What, what would you advise me to do there? Here's a conversation I'm going to have to have this week in my ministry. You have any advice on that? You have any, you take on this? Here's a, here's a story that we were reading at church last week. I figured you have a different perspective than probably anybody in the room did, so I wanted to ask you about it. I'm going to go back and tell them what you said. Here's this parable. What does that mean? What, what do you think that teaches about God? What, what do you think that looks like to put into practice? We were talking about it at church. This is one of the things we said we are going to try to do to put into practice, but you've got a different perspective than I do. What do you think that looks like? Right? It's not that hard, but it's not coming in as a teacher. It's not coming in expecting that I have a set of answers that you, and I need to dictate what questions are important to you. It's coming in believing that you have a life experience that's worth learning from, you have qualities that I, I want to emulate and grow in because of what I am as a disciple. And that I do not need to be the authority in every room I walk into. I can come in from a lower place. I can come in curious. I can come in affirming. I can come in incredibly non-defensive. There's nothing you're going to say that's going to ruin this for me. Because I don't have an agenda for you. I have an agenda for me as a disciple. You get to be in charge of you. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Uh, we've got Seth. What is, yes, sir. Uh, you keep saying, uh, for instance, things like, you know, at church, we're doing this at church, I need to handle this at church, mm -hmm. after church. Could you quickly just give us a snapshot description of what a church gathering time together yeah. might, might look like? I sure can. Uh, they look a little bit different than one another in some of the ways because we're, we're going to start out with a very simple framework. And then as they come to faith, and as we ask that question, okay, how do we put this into practice? We just read a passage on baptism. How are we going to put that into practice? We just read a passage on Eucharist. How are we going to put that into practice? Then we're going to make decisions that contextualize what this looks like as a church. Uh, and so for most of our churches, when they gather, uh, a lot of them last like maybe four or five hours. 
they're in somebody's apartment most of the time. Uh, they're around the dinner table most of the time. So, you know, and it's New York culture and it's immigrant culture. So if we say we start at six, people start showing up at eight. Um, and so it's like, all right, well, first people walk in the door, we're making dinner. We're not really going to start till everybody gets there. But when everybody gets there, we're going to sit down and start sharing a meal together. And our communion takes place in the midst of a meal. And the first thing we're going to ask is, uh, what's something everybody's thankful for since the last time we met? We're just going to go around the room and talk about the things we're grateful for and, and acknowledge that those things come from God. And we say, all right, what's a, what's a struggle or a need everybody's got? And we're going to sit around and talk about that. And then we're going to say, okay, well, how do we help each other meet those needs? Uh, now, this early on, you start, nobody in the room is a Christian, but those are questions they can answer and participate in. Mm -hmm. And the more they grow into faith, the longer that part of the conversation often gets. Mm -hmm. But this is the DNA of what, what it means to be church together. What are we thankful for? What are our needs in the room? How do we help each other meet those needs? Uh, then we're going to read scripture, uh, and we're just going to ask a few simple questions. What does this teach about God or who God is? What does this teach about life? How are we going to put this into practice, and who are we going to share this with? And that conversation is going to last as long as it needs to last. And there's going to be conflict, and there's going to be difference of opinion, and difference of perspective, and we're going to sit there and have that conversation until we as a group can say, all right, this is how we're going to put this into practice. Uh, and typically, I'm going to try to stop leading a church within the first month that it's together. Uh, what I really like to do is pick the most skeptical and antagonistic person in the group and say, uh, hey, do you want to facilitate this week? <laughs> and it's like, I don't, well, I don't know how. It's like, well, I'm going to ask the same questions I asked last week. If I just texted you the questions, do you feel like you could do what I did? It's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, person who's most skeptical and antagonistic knows it's not a bait and switch when they get deleted. Changes the conversation. But that also makes it very easy to reproduce uh, because everyone has been part of planting a church or leading it and facilitating it. They've all done evangelism as a part of coming to faith, not on the other side of conversion. It was a part of how they came to faith. Because that is how almost all cultures operate. You don't really make decisions as an individual. You make them with the input and perspective of the people that matter to you. But for some reason, we don't form people in discipleship that way. It's like, no, 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 don't do evangelism until you know enough. And that prevents them from allowing everyone else in their network of relationships to participate in the learning they're going through and coming to faith. Uh, somebody's hand was up. Yes, sir. Just, there's the skeptical part of me. Say, I mean, this sounds amazing. and I, I'm, I'm overselling. I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm from a small community in northern Minnesota. Mm -hmm. but, but here's the thing. My, my daughter is a 20-something. Uh, she's married, has a couple kids. Mm -hmm. And this is what I'm hearing. This is what she's dreaming of right here. Mm -hmm. The house church, she is coming to me as the minister and saying, you know, what can we do, Dad? What can we do to make it more mm -hmm. uh, organic, to make it more where it's going to be growing like that? Mm -hmm. And so any ideas on how to implement this? I mean, I look and say that, that I can understand a big city, but in a small community, how do we implement it? Uh, well, again, I, I don't want to presume that I understand context that I'm not a part of, but right. I, I do think it starts with if you don't know how to interact with lost people and have those conversations, I think it starts there. Because they need to be participants in building the culture of faith that they're going to be a part of. And, and so I, where that starts in terms of the community, I, I'd probably have to be on the ground in order to say that's where I would hang out if I were in this town. But I think it does start with saying, okay, well, within wherever I live, where do people go when they want to interact socially? Mm -hmm. If it's, you know, I, I grew up, uh, I got my first full-time job when I was 15. I was a busboy uh, and then got laterally promoted to a dishwasher. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, all we did every day was just sit around and talk as waiters and in the kitchen. And that's where I learned evangelism. But... When I do this with churches, a lot of the older population will say, well, I don't, I don't really know any lost people. I don't really know any not lost people. I said, all right, well, tell me about your barber. Tell me about your mechanic. Mm -hmm. I said, you got restaurants that you're a regular at? How many of the staff's name do you know? Do you know any of the waiter's name at the restaurant you go to every single week? 
uh, here's, here's an easy tip for you. Uh, next time you go to a restaurant that you were a regular at, uh, now if, if you are older and white, it's gonna be uncomfortable for a minute, but ask if you can talk to the manager, and then just compliment the person that just waited on you, and tell their boss how, what, how good of a job they did. And that is 100% right. Amen. Yes, I'm sorry. Can we collectively amen that? Thank you. Uh, I will tell you this. I was a waiter and, and a bartender and a busboy for years and years and years the, uh, in, in lots of different restaurants. Every single place I worked collectively agreed that the worst crowd is Sunday after church. They are rude. They are entitled. They are judgmental that you weren't at church. But you weren't at church because they were going to come out to eat afterwards. And then they don't tip well. I'm going to do that. My, my friend was the, uh, I won't give his name, but he's the Marshal of Red River, New Mexico. He got to carry automatic weapons. And um, he, he told me something. He was one of my youth deacons, and he went there, and he said, the worst crowd Red River hated was the Red River encampment. And he said they would rather have the biker games because he'd walk into the biker games. He's gonna be no trouble, no, nope, because they tipped well, and they were nice to people. And the encampment people would steal the toilet paper and tip horribly. And so for their campers, and I and I listened to him. I'm like, okay, so that goes to that authenticity. But what you said about teaching the Bible—that's the way I teach my general Bible. And there's a lot of non-Christians in the university. There's also church kids. And if, you, if we taught the Bible, I call it the golden ticket. Okay, what's happening here? What does it tell you about God and people? What does it mean for us today? Yeah. Those three simple questions, I'm telling you, our students who grew up have never read the Bible. And they're like going, did Jesus really say that? And it's, it works. And once you understand that Jesus and you start making these questions and start interacting with the lost world, yeah. some things just kind of take care of themselves. Yeah. Like you're saying, it's very organic and fun. Well, and, and frankly, it is also incredibly frustrating and, and insecurity-inducing for those of us that grew up in the church. But here's the, here's the deal. I don't have any sense of when the disciples converted. That's so good. I know when they started ministry. I know exactly when they started ministry. Matthew 10, Luke 10, I think it's Mark 5, Jesus sends out 72. Sends them out to look for people of peace, proclaim the gospel. Three chapters later in Mark 8, only one out of 12 disciples recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, and he's getting called Satan, so that's not a great track record, <laughs> right? The last conversation the apostles have with an earthly Jesus in Acts 1-6, they say, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And I just imagine that Jesus ascends to heaven with a face palm, but he does turn over the keys at the end of that conversation. And we have been so concerned about quality control and about entrusting the ministry of the kingdom of God to people that are going to screw it up, that we forget that's the story that we've always been a part of. That's the only way kingdom ministry was ever getting done. And we refuse to extend to the people we want to see become a part of us the same trust and respect and dignity and hospitality that Jesus does to his own disciples. And then we wonder, why are they not interested in being a part of our community? You hear what I'm saying? All right. Uh, is there anybody here yet whose bottom set hasn't kicked? Uh, I just want to make sure. <laughs> Strange choice of words, Jill. I, I just want to make sure we have all those. Oh, ouch. Oh, man. But can I give us a mutual, oh, yeah, when it comes to we need to be asking these questions and thinking through this. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Uh, Seth um, and David, both. Uh, in fact, come stand up here because we're going to pray over you guys after we maybe ask you a question or two. Um, the, the things that, that y'all are doing, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, do I need to say it? Okay. Yes, in our church we stand. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the things that you guys are doing, in part because of your gifts, uh, look deceptively easy. And I'll just you know, say that out loud. But it is also because you both believe so strongly in the Jesus who sent, you know, 
as you said, disciples out who came back and mm -hmm. he said, how did it go? And they said, well, some people don't agree with you, but we have a plan to kill them. Can you help us? <laughs> uh, so, 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 the, so the sweet and, and uh, loving spirit that you have, the spirit of, of reaching out on the football, uh, you know, where you put the, what did you just say to the youth ministers when you put a headset on a coach, all of a sudden his language can oh, they lose really their minds. Yet. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and you're, I mean, Every time we talk, Seth, you give me something. Saying to the bartender, you know, you're such a peacemaker. Instead of, you realize you're creating alcoholics every day. <laughs> you feel good about that? I mean, it's just so important. So important for me to hear that. So, so important. Um, and so there's two things. One, will you please... What is the E course? If somebody says how, mm -hmm. how long is it, can you just give us a yeah. quick a quick thing? Uh, the, the E course we do with churches, uh, it's eight units long. Every unit has a, a missionary skill and a spiritual discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, basically what we say is, you know, we don't want to train your entire church, but we'll if you can pull together a team of about five to eight, we'll work with them. And we will work with them until they are capable of reproducing their own learning. Video driven or text driven? Uh, it has uh, videos in a workbook, but mainly it's coaching driven. So I don't okay. think any unit has videos longer than seven minutes. And okay. there's only eight units because okay. nobody has the time to sit around and watch me talk about ministry all day. I would rather get on a Zoom call and talk to you about the ministry you've been doing mm -hmm. and, and case study and problem solve around what the next steps are there. Mm -hmm. uh, because we can't tell you what you need to go out and say to people and what conversations you need to be having you're gonna to need to figure that out when you know those people. Mm -hmm. But if we can come and, and talk about it as a team and learn from each other's evolving experience, then we can probably reproduce that learning within the organizations we're part of. Second question. Man, I've got somebody who I think would connect so well with this. Do you guys do internships? Is there a way that people who want to come and peek through a window or who can walk beside you mm -hmm. can see this because it sounds like uh, it, yeah, it's a set, it's a setting where if all of a sudden I show up with a notepad, it might change the feeling around the. I would say that that's true. Dinner table. Uh, yeah, I would say that's true. Uh, it's one of the reasons we don't invite people to church with us. Right. Uh, but in terms of internships, if if you are a youth minister or campus minister, uh, we will take interns. What I I've told the. The college connections we have is don't send me people that can't be self-managing and pretty independent because I won't meet with them more than once a week. Uh, our interns, I stick them in Queens, which is like an hour and a half away from me. Uh, we put them in, a, in an immigrant population and they do the exact same job our missionaries do. So I had to turn down one of the Crossway students because she's a great candidate, but she's not old enough for me to feel good about the liability issues there. Right. Mm. So <laughs> I told her, I said, call me again in two years, and yep. uh, I'll tell you yes. <laughs> I appreciate that. David, any opportunities as far as, uh, you know, on the ground learning or things for the things that you do and you're talking? You've no, been talking absolutely. About. I, I think the number one thing, if you, you could just put this in the back of your mind, is tell me more. If you were to sit down with mm -hmm. students and just say, we ran into these two guys, and they were saying a lot of weird stuff. Would you just tell me what it's like to be a teenager today? Would you tell me what it's like to be a college student today? Talk to your youth ministers. Youth ministers, talk to the other people. If we would just say, tell me more, and then shut our mouths and listen, most of what we've learned, and I think I could say this about Seth, is called ethnography. We got it up here, but we walk alongside with people, and that's you, you ask questions, and then you're just quiet. Yeah. There's so many resources. Um, all of our colleges have some, um, you know, Fuller has some, it, the, the people really are open-handed, you know, they're like, here, take this, use it. But the contextualization piece, here's where the crossover is, it's huge. You got to know your context. You got to know the people. If you're trying to reach the lost, what are, what are the lost in your community like? Talk to your barber, talk to people, have an uncaged, like visitor. This is awesome. Come visit your church and see if they understand anything. We've done that before. That's kind of humbling. But you have to talk to the people you're trying to reach. Um, but part of that is just sitting and listening. I'm a big listening fan. Okay, tell me more, tell me more. That's a part of it. Okay, great. So uh, two things to be self-promotional for a second. If you're interested in what we're doing, exponentgroup.org. That's our website as a ministry. Uh, Lost Faith is a book I wrote uh, a couple years ago that basically is, is kind of full of stories out of our ministry to say, okay, what... When lost people come to faith, what does, their, what does that faith look like? What does that ministry look like? 
Uh, so, you know, if, if that's your cup of tea. Is it, is it Zoe course? I'm trying to remember that. Zoe? The, 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 the one that Bruce Black, the Inductive Bible Study course. Discovery Bible Study? And there was a Greek word that they were using that they labeled it on the website, but I can't oh, remember I don't know what it was. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Discovery Bible Study is a is is a off tool, oft used tool, of just opening up God's Word and studying with people. Um, so you say, "Wow, where do I go from here? If if I dare do this, can I give you step one? The revival in our churches will not begin with us; it'll begin with God." Because revival comes this way, not this way. So we start by getting on our knees and praying together and saying, God, show us. Open our doors. Open our eyes. Let us see. Uh, if you want to begin something this next week, then call some folks and say, hey, at this time, at this place, I just want to meet and pray about our city. I just want to meet and pray about how we can be better at sharing Christ. Uh, I just want to talk. Um, this recording right here will be free and online. And if, if you'd like to get a copy of that, you know, listen to it and get some folks together at your house and say, let's, let's pray, but then let's listen to this and let's talk about how this might impact what we're doing. Uh, that's, that's number one. Number two, do not be shy about reaching out to these guys because they will point you in good directions. Don't be shy about calling us at the church relations office. We can point you in some good, good directions. There are folks who are coaching others in this. If I was going to put uh, uh, something up there, I'd probably put something up about a group called Team Expansion. We are sending four students from Crossways to Jordan who are going to walk with a missionary there for two weeks. Another group is going to Turkey. Do we feel like we've got to get people in Turkey and Jordan? No. But these are church kids who are so walled up, they're going to end up in a space where they're going, what am I going to do? How about be nice to people? How about learn how to not be the expert? How about just experiencing this and then processing it with some of these missionaries who have been doing it for some time? And last but not least, if you really want to start changing your church, give your teens something that's theirs and say, will you run this? Here's my pitch. If you don't have at least one or two Sundays a year, when you say to the teens, you guys are in charge of this Sunday. It's coming. So who's going to say the prayer? Who wants to lead singing? Who's going to give the lesson? How are you going to do this? Who's going to greet? Who's going to pass the trays? You say, well, they're not members yet. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I don't think you have to have authority to pass a tray. Uh, and and you'll, you'll have to sort through. I mean, my, my mom did it, you know, for years. So, um, but, but, but giving them a space and opportunity. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll ask David a question. David, here's the question that was given. So you're telling me that this, this keychain thing means that I ought to put this 19-year-old kind of snarky gal at some point who says, I'd like to help to run the fundraiser. We normally need to raise 3000 bucks for that. Is, that. is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> remember and Jesus? And they will raise more than that. Yeah. You pro- you, you, you're probably going to be surprised. Here's my confession and weeping story we'll end with. There was a young man, very bright, the son of our Hispanic minister uh, who was doing Spanish language outreach that I started missing at church. And I asked his dad, where is, and I gave his name. And he said, oh, he's going there, and he named another church in town. I said, what? Oh, and I knew it was the band. I stinking knew it was the band. And I said, it's because the band. He said, no, no, it's not. A couple of his friends, high school senior, a couple of his friends invited him. So one Sunday is all it took. No, he went there, and when he asked them about their youth ministry and their outreach, they said, what do you mean? I mean, do you have have youth class? What do you have? Why do you ask? Well, I mean, my dad's a minister, and blah, 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 blah. Wait right here. Three minutes later, they came back, handed him some stuff. Would you start a small group for us? Uh, This is my first Sunday here. He said, yeah, I know. But you sound like you're interested. You got a couple of buddies. Here's material and start a small group. We'd love to have you be a small group leader. And he stayed. 
and he led, mm -hmm. and their group grew. And I'm angry. <laughs> you know why I'm angry? Why didn't you do that here? And if I asked him, he'd say, well, number one, there were no small group leaders who weren't adults. Number two, if I wanted to, you'd have said, you know, six months in the fall, we're going to have small group leader training. It's nine weeks. You go through that training, and then you're going to be paired up with another small group leader, and you're going to go be in small group with him. And these people said, you believe in Jesus? Rock and roll. Here. Um, I hate that. But I'm so excited that God put him someplace where he could be leading in a Bible study. And I have no idea how many people are going to be touched by that. Um, I want to give away a book. And in order for me to do it, I need those uh, sheets. Wherever the sheets are, Rachel, help me out. <coughs> All right, you can keep the pan. That's right. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Everybody who put their email on here will get this PowerPoint. Can you please give it up for David and for Seth? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna finish with a prayer over them, and then we're going to go. I need you to give me a number between one and four. Three. I need you, brother, if you would, to give me a number between one and six. Five. Uh, I need uh, to see Brian Johnston from North Bend. You just won a book that I just bought from David Fraze. Congratulations. Thank you, for, thank you for coming. And now you should feel a little Puritan guilt over that. So I'm going to ask you to stand and bless these two guys. Come here. David, Seth, come here. And I want, and you only got 10 seconds to do this. I need some folks to get down here, and let's just gather around them as we pray over them. Brian, you're going to word it. So anybody that wants to, come stand with me. And we're just going to say thank you with our with our prayers and support. <laughs> somebody can come to my school. Oh, oh my goodness they're, they're at your church. We just have to we just have to turn them loose. We just have to turn them loose. Father God, we just give you praise and glory and honor for your faithfulness. And God, we just pray a blessing on these two servants and for their willingness to share with us. Pray that all that here, God, that we will believe and we will obey and we'll. Make the transformations needed, God. Pray for those people of peace in our life. Mm -hmm. Give us the courage, yes. God. We we know you. We believe in you. Help us to act upon that belief. And thank you again for this time of encouragement. And what a blessing to your kingdom in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.